Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So hello, Dan. Great to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Marion. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your business. Okay, well, uh, there's actually two businesses. One is called Sawyer Fielding and the other is called Webster's Surveyors. Sawyer Fielding is the legal entity, if you like, and Webster's Surveyors is the second brand within it. Sawyer Fielding work in compulsory purchase surveying, probably about 99% residential, 1% commercial, and it's all representing homeowners affected by compulsory purchase schemes. So picture a council estate that's been demolished, maybe 500 properties, 100 of which may be leasehold, the other 400 being council tenants. Then my company will help as many of the 100 leaseholders as possible. So we'll, we'll value we'll negotiate and we'll advise them through the entire compulsory purchase process. So there's quite a few legal aspects to it as well and a lot of hand-holding, a lot of dealing with the statutory notices, helping them find somewhere else to buy, dealing with related professions as well. And does that happen a lot, compulsory purchase orders? I feel like it's a, it used to happen a lot in the 80s and 70s, but not so much now. Or maybe that's just my, my thinking. There was definitely a huge amount in the 80s. And back then, it, it was mostly the DV, as they are now, doing most of it, which so, is why... So you mean district valuer? Yes, yes, the district valuer, yeah. Which is why you find a lot of CPO surveyors now are probably close to retirement because of when it was happening before. But the more recent wave probably started about 10 years or so ago. There's a lot of it which is very London-centric, a lot of council estates being regenerated, but also a number of transport schemes as well, where you've got new roads, railways, uh, the dreaded high-speed two that everyone talks about. As soon as I tell people that I'm a CPO surveyor, what everyone always asks is, oh, do you work on high-speed two? <laughs> well, yes, but so does everyone else. <laughs> and we, we try to focus on uh, some other stuff, the residential stuff in particular. You see, you say CPO surveyor, and I just want to say CP3O. <laughs> bit of a star wars geek absolutely get that <laughs> i grew up in star wars <laughs> yeah we're of that we're of that age well my birthday is actually on the 4th of may some of i'm the uh i'm a oh. star wars baby Fourth of the day. Oh. well <laughs> happy birthday for a few weeks ago oh thank you thank you yeah a bit of a different one being in uh lockdown how has that affected your business on the cpo side a lot of things have, have stalled because most properties are bought by local authorities, the local authorities are bureaucratic at the best of times, and now everyone's working from home. They've got practical problems like how do you seal a document? And it's a case of what they gave couriers to go to council offices once every three weeks or so to seal anything. And if you can't quite meet that date, then everything gets delayed. Or if the local authority are, are indemnified under a planning and development agreement by a developer and the developer's hemorrhaging share price, as so many are right now, then the developers are saying, well, do we really want to be buying these properties right now? Can we delay matters until hopefully the market picks up and their share price picks up? So unfortunately, it's it's delay and delay and delay. 
And on the Webster Surveyors site, which is a, a non-compulsory purchase, that's more traditional residential valuation and surveying everything from tax valuations to matrimonial disputes to to, to home surveys. Surveys, of course, have dropped off a cliff, as, as I'm sure they have for many people. We're finding a lot of the leasehold reform work is holding up well. A lot of people taking the opportunity whilst they're at home to to, to examine what it, is it worth doing that lease extension or buying the freehold. But generally, yes, that things are slower. So we're working on a lot of our marketing recently. We've been using the downtime to improve a lot of our systems, procedures, to make sure that we're fighting fit on the other side of it. And when you say they, how big is your business? There are eight of us in total. So chartered surveyors, there's myself, Richard, Mark and Jonathan. We've got an ASOC Ricks guy called Shanor. We've got two graduates who are Raf and Charlie. Uh, and our office manager, Jess, who pulls all the strings behind us. Sounds like you need some more women in there. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah, just, we're... <laughs> just pointing that out. <laughs> no, the, 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 first, the first two people I hired uh, were, were both women. And what, 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 one of them took her, took her on as a trainee. Uh, she was with us for about four years or so. And her, her only experience prior to joining us was, was actually just making beds in a nursing home. Wow, that's a career change. So, yeah, huge career change, but but she was fantastic for the company and, and, and I took her on partly because she'd lived on a regeneration estate. She was going through compulsory purchase herself. Her mother, who she lived with at the time, was actually one of our clients. <laughs> and we, we, we tend to find people who understand what we do and are emotionally connected to it in some way aren't are far better employees than if you just go through a random recruitment consultants and find someone who says, yep, I've been a surveyor for X number of years, I know what I'm doing. Well, yeah, you might technically, but do you on the social side? <laughs> you know, that's so important. And I I used to come across a number of surveyors, I'd say younger in, in general, who had actually never bought and sold their own property. Mm. So when it comes to, and so whilst they might be technically brilliant, but when it comes to empathising with your clients and just shaping a report with that client in mind it always seemed to fall short and that's where not necessarily complaints and claims came in but where sort of some of the niggles came in and it's really important that that young surveyors get get that kind of experience or to really put themselves in the customer's shoes of what it's like to buy but also what it's like to live in a property with a defect or with getting to do the some DIY and having to find the money to do a roof repair or whatever but unfortunately, surveyors, you know, aren't really that well paid. I mean, they, they earn a good salary compared to many, I'm sure, but they're not raking it in and not everybody can afford to buy their own home. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And we, we try to hire people who, who've had some life some life experience, not just not just surveying. We're very good on the on the training side. We, we invest an awful lot in, in in CPD, and we've got our own in-house training system as well. So we can teach people the technical side, but you can't teach someone where they've come from and what what their what their life's abilities are going to be. One of the things I used to do when I ran a, a customer complaints team was I tried as much as possible to get them. I mean, they weren't surveyors. And I didn't want them to be surveyors because I wanted them to ask the stupid question because that's when you would get, really get the, the good results on a, on a complaint or a claim. But I would always try and make sure that they saw all parts of the business and also went and spent some time in an estate agent's because love them or hate them, they're the most customer-facing side of 
of the home buying and selling process. And they would, you know, they would um, go out and shadow an estate agent, talk to a vendor and really get to understand what's that, what that's like. Because it's really, really, gives them a really good insight into what the customer's going through. And bear in mind, these are people who would literally n- probably never be able to afford a property at all. You know, surveyors yeah. got a fighting chance, you know, but some of these people who are on very low administration salaries, they're just not going to get on the property ladder, not in any way, shape or form really. And when you're asking them to deal with a valuation challenge or a complaint on a on a property that for us, we would class as an, an average for the local area, actually it could be a lot of money for somebody dealing with that. And I'd say that not just with my complaints and claims teams, but also you know, people in, who work for lenders. I remember going to one lender to deliver some training and they worked in the this team, they were lovely, young, very young, and they worked in the mortgage department and they didn't understand really what a mortgage was and how it worked. And, and it's just a sign of the times and it, you get to see the divide between those who can and those who can't. But it's interesting you saying about the the whole sort of empathy and, and understanding the job, because that's my, my experience as well. I was brought up on a, a council estate in North Wales. My mum was offered the fabulous opportunity to buy her property through the Right to Buy programme. And she was advised, no, you don't need a property. You don't need a survey. It's a terraced house. It's <laughs> fine. It'll be fine. And actually she got, you know, bad advice in that she really couldn't afford a mortgage as a, as, as a single mum, albeit she was working. The property suffered from lack of investment you know it wasn't double glaze it had condensation problems but it also had sulfate cap tap because it was in a coal mining area and the solid floor over a number of years then you know then sort of um, uh, heaved up and ended up needing all sorts of significant repair work and, and things oh, um, but it was the yeah yeah I mean you know I'm not getting the violins out here it wasn't the worst property to live in but it was a it, it was an experience for me in what it's like to go through some of those processes the trust that you put into the people that you speak to through the house buying and selling process so the the mortgage advisor my mum spoke to who worked for a a large bank who I won't mention you know was one oh you don't need a survey it's fine it's a terrace house you know and you know she was sort of missold everything, ill-advised, and she went into it in good faith, wanting to put a roof, a bit of security and a roof over her head for her children. And at the time, I didn't, you know, for a few years after, you know, I didn't understand that and I didn't really realise why I became a surveyor. But actually, when I look back now, it's because I was very aware of, of just my surroundings, the built environment, how people live. And I think that's why I end up or found it sort of easy, I guess, to work in complaints and claims because I saw what happened when things go wrong when you're on the other side. And a surveyor doesn't go out to to do a bad job at all. But when someone's got to live in the consequences of that bad job, that's really bad. And I think I sort of empathise with that. And now I look back at my career as I'm, you know, old and (laughs) grey, you know, I think think that's what, what, that's what, (laughs) it's lockdown. It's lockdown. I've done my hair. Um, (laughs) But you know, that's the, you know, that's the thing that that, that shapes and and it's always fascinated me as to why people become surveyors. So, so why did you become a surveyor and how did you get into compulsory purchase orders, which is quite unique, let's face it. Yeah. Well, well, my, my, my very first experience in property was actually a summer job during university working for a company doing housing condition claims. You mentioned that you grew up in Wales and I went to university in Swansea. 
I knew uh, there was a bit of a Welsh accent in there hanging around. <laughs> I knew, I knew. I lived there for six years. <laughs> uh, originally from Wolverhampton. But when I went to university in Swansea, one of the university holiday jobs I did was for a company that what we would do is we would go around these incredibly run-down council estates, mostly in mid-Wales, all of them non-traditional builds, various forms of concrete. And we would literally just walk around looking for housing disrepair. So we said, oh, okay, yeah, that might be lintel failure. That might be subsidence. And then we'd knock on someone's door with this big video camera on our shoulders. And, and this is going back a bit. So you, you don't get the small things that you would know, these massive cameras. A couple of times I get chased down the street by gangs trying to nick the camera off me. <laughs> but I, I'd, I'd knock on the door and say, oh, are you a council tenant? Yeah, of course you are. It's the, the likelihood anyway. Not many people bought back then. Well, what we're doing is we're, we're recording all the disrepair and we're suing local councils for it. It was one of those horrible schemes that I didn't really understand very well at the time, where people would sign both an insurance document and a loan document. And we were told how one would pay off the other, not really understanding it very well ourselves and it's the impetuousness of youth, I guess. But what, what it did do is it started to teach me a little bit about housing defects and got me interested in, in really talking to the occupiers of these properties, because as they're pointing out what they think is damp on the walls, and sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't, they start to tell you their life stories, and you're trying to win their trust over to get them to sign these documents so you can make a claim on their behalf. So it, 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 was, it was very much a combination of the two. And then after that, and again, you, you mentioned mortgage brokers earlier, and my, my second experience in property was working for a mortgage broker's. Actually, part qualified mortgage advisor, going back a good few years now. And again, I, I probably worked in what everyone loves to hate. I did the self certification market, so I was I was selling the mortgages that you you said, yeah, I earn thirty thousand a year, but no one checked it. Oh God! <laughs> having having dealt with lots of claims over the years, <laughs> you know, I can just see this. Oh no, Dan. <laughs> the problems yeah i look back on it now and and, and i cringe but it was also good character building because yeah, you, yeah. you learned a lot about the people at the time and, and the brokers i worked for because i was running a running a department within them i designed with an it geek this uh, uh crm system which would have everyone's contact details on it and a lot of the details about their finances what they've said what it was that they were looking for but I also built in some of the soft side of things to it as well. So a CRM is a customer relationship management system? Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yes. So, for example, if someone, when I'd called them, had, had said, oh, I, I can't talk at the moment because it's my son's, my son Tom's birthday party, I'd make a note of that. And then the next time I called them to talk to them about their mortgage, I'd ask, oh, how, how was Tom's party? And you start, you start to win trust over. And then fast forward a few years, I'm applying for graduate jobs, mostly in financial management, but I applied for one as, as a trainee building surveyor uh, at a large local authority. Got to the final interview, at which point they told me, oh, we, we misadvertise it. It's not a trainee building surveyor. It's a tra trainee general practice surveyor. But fine, went, went through, got the job. And they had a department within the council that did compulsory purchase. And at the time, I was living on a council estate, which was undergoing regeneration itself in a neighbouring borough or in a neighbouring council. And I was chair of a local residence group that fed into the process. So, so I managed to angle my way into working for that, that particular department in compulsory purchase. And I got the love for it. And it really went from there. 
So how did your, um, you talked about your, your business you got, Sawyer Fielding and Webster's. How did you come to have sort of two businesses and how has that, how has that grown and does that complicate things? Well, Sawyer Fielding was launched in October 2013. I'd just turned 33 at, at the time. Uh, just got back from honeymoon a few months earlier. It was actually on honeymoon that I decided to hand in my notice. I figured that uh, if I'm emailing all of the time while I'm on honeymoon, well, first of all, I've got a very, very understanding wife. <laughs> For a bit, anyway. <laughs> uh, absolutely, yeah. Well, we're, st- we're still married. We've got two kids now, so she hasn't divorced me yet. <laughs> Uh, and secondly, I should really be working for myself uh, if, if I'm spending all of this time doing it anyway. So the first few years of the company went very, very well. And we we started we started getting asked by a lot of our landlord clients in particular, well, you've done this CPO claim for me. Can you do a survey for me as well? Or can you extend my lease for me? Or I've got to pay capital gains tax. Can you do a valuation for that? And sometimes we were able to say, yes, we can, but there was compulsory purchase surveyors splattered all over the branding, so it didn't look good if we were doing something quite different. And sometimes we were having to say, well, no, we can't. We don't have the right expertise in-house. But using that database and and a lot of the connections we'd formed, I decided, well, let's launch a separate brand. We'll have to call it something completely different so it doesn't have compulsory purchase surveyors splattered all over the branding. And we called that Webster's Surveyors. At that point, we grew the company as well. I took on a guy called Richard, Richard Stacey, who's a co-director. He'd been a director in a West London firm for about 20 years before. Took on a guy called Mark Heen, uh, who actually is a consultant with us. He's the only consultant in the team. But he, he's been doing home surveys for about the last 30-odd years. And we started offering these services partly to the soy fielding clients, where we've got that huge database, but also talking to a lot of the solicitors that we've been referring work to over the years. So we'd, we'd probably referred maybe seven, 800 uh, sales and a number of related purchases as well over the years to different solicitors, but, but we never got anything back because, of course, they, they, they don't really have CPO work to refer back mm. very often, not something that many people come across, but they do have other kinds of work that they could refer back. So we then started talking to all of them and, and saying, well, look, we've launched this new brand, Webster's. We've got some really, really good people uh, in it. Can you start referring some work back? And, and it snowballed from there, really. So do you advertise your work or is it mainly referral? A lot of it so far has been referral. Webster's has only really been going since about August, September last year. So, so it's very new. We've just been investing quite heavily in the website and hopefully that's going to start paying dividends quite soon as well. Do you pay a referral fee or is it more the business, uh, just a good business relationship you have with people? Because some surveyors feel a bit icky about referral fees going back into and transparency. No, it's, it, it's, it's just good business practice and we, we're not looking at paying or receiving referral fees. There is one surveyor who's retired now who passes us work on and, and we pay him a referral fee. But of course, we, we can't really pass anything back there. And your name's Dan Knowles, but your companies are called Sawyer Fielding and Webster's. <laughs> How do you come up with a name for a business? Well, I, I didn't want to call call a company Knowles Surveying or anything like that because I, I always wanted to make it look a lot bigger than it is. Uh, and initially, of course, it was just me on my own when I first started Sawyer Fielding. Sawyer is my mother's maiden name, and, and it's a surname you probably don't come across too often. 
So I thought it sounded interesting. And Fielding was completely random. I think I might have been watching like Most Haunted with Yvette Fielding or something at the time. <laughs> so yeah, completely and utterly random. Uh, and that's a really, really sad fact. <laughs> but I'm sure Yvette Fielding, and for those who don't know her, she was a, a Blue Peter presenter in the, back in the day. <laughs> I, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, didn't you? Oh, no. Gosh, I'm the uh, but I'm just very pleased uh, to know that. And what about Webster's? Webster's because we're quite quite a techie company, and we, we we do everything on on our case management system. We go out with iPads. Everything is tech based. I wanted something that sound that was easy to remember and sounded fairly modern and techy. And I started thinking of web, internet, web Webster's. I thought, yeah, that there, there aren't any firms called Webster surveyors out there, and it's an easy name for people to remember. And it's interesting that you've chosen names rather than, you know, some weird brand name or a name that you've come up with or, or, or a word you've come up with, rather. And I suppose you're right, it gives that sort of still personal touch that your people, but in the business, yeah, absolutely, yeah. once removed from, from it. I think because going back a good few years before I got into property, my, my first degree was a law degree and, and I wanted to become a solicitor. And so many solicitors firms are, are, are the names of the partners. <laughs> And I think probably subconsciously, that's what I was looking at. And it's, it's interesting that choosing a business name, when I started to work for myself, so one of my corporate, I set up a, a small you know, consultancy uh, and I was delivering a lot of customer experience training to construction firms, actually. And um, so I call my business Inspiring Customer Experience. Does what it says I don't on the do tin. That, does what it says on the tin. Except I don't really do much of that now. And uh, now I, I still run my own business and I do my coaching and, and different things. But I generally work for Blue Box. And so now I'm looking at changing my name, my business name to just good old Marion Ellis Limited. Because it just keeps it simple. But I think it's a really important point that if you are setting up a business, just to think ahead about what might happen and to give yourself the flexibility. And I felt a bit awkward about calling a business my own name but as I've become more confident in working for myself it you know it does sit sit better blue box the the guys when they came up with blue box I think were as the story goes I think they were writing on a, a board a white big white board the things they would like to do the training this, this the other and they just drew a blue box in the middle Oh, right. <laughs> so nothing <laughs> uh, too extravagant. And same with the, the Surveyor Hub. You know, I was trying to think of a name of what is this hub that I'm creating for surveyors? It's a Surveyor Hub. <laughs> uh, hence, we've got the Surveyor Hub podcast. And sometimes you can overthink these things and sometimes you just need to do the old Ron Seal, as they say, does what it says on the on the tin. Yeah, well, I've only recently joined the Facebook page. I've got to say, it's fantastic. The amount of posts uh, that that are there and so many people reply to everything as well. It's a really helpful community. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's it's um it's been a an experiment and it's been an interesting thing to grow. And we're always learning. We don't always get it right. We do have spats every now and again as we all disagree. But I think it's so important that we have that because we. We learn about the kind of surveyors that we want to be and also how to react and, and to treat people because it's very different on a, a platform like that where you're writing your comments, you know, and you might put an exclamation mark or not and it can just change the whole tone of, uh, of what you write. <laughs> and it's grown organically and enthusiastically. And you're right, it's a very engaged group, I have to say, compared to other groups that I'm, um, that I'm in. It's a real geek fest most of the time. 
And it's interesting though, because some people don't like to post, but they do because I'm, I'm the group admin. I can see that they look. And as we stand up today, we've got about 1900 in the group. And I thought, you know, when I set it up, I thought I'll ask, I asked 30 people, thought, if we get 50, that'd be amazing. And lo and behold, we've got, <laughs> got so wow, much more. Wow, you've done fantastic. But, but that makes it different to what it was intended to be. And it means that for a lot of people, they don't like to post and share some of the challenges that they've got, but they do message me privately. I get lots of messages, uh, as do some others. And yeah, it's just been really, really interesting. But people do look at the posts, even if they don't always respond. And so, you know, now I'll get a message saying, oh, thanks for posting that. Or that was really interesting. Uh, and just that confidence in social media, I think, uh, for people. And the other thing I'm quite proud about is that it's, it's about 25% women in the group and that you know improves the diversity of the of the conversation it's a fun group you know we talk about some rubbish in there as well and some geeky things it's not all all serious and that's just the way that (laughs) the way that we are at blue box so yeah i'm glad you glad you like that the thing i would say for people if they are in the group and listening to this or, or want to join you do need to be a surveyor or on the road to being qualified as a surveyor and when you get into the group, read the group rules, use the hashtags and go and check out the units section where I think there's something like 80 odd different sections where we've grouped together some interesting posts. And if you use a search function, you can normally find something that's there. So it's a bit of a, a mess, really, in terms of how it's how it's grown. <laughs> but uh, but there's lots in there and it's interesting to see where where things will go in the future. And next time we're hiring... If you're a woman in the group, please, we need diversity. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and one of the things with the group, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a, we try and keep recruitment and self-promotion out of it and try and keep hmm. it to the general surveyor water cooler moments, as they as they call it. But we do have occasional threads where we post about recruitment. We post about share your links. Um, if people have done some interesting articles, always happy for those to be shared we just don't want it to be too sort of self-promotion because you've got lots of other platforms for that and you know you've got LinkedIn and sometimes it's about the right target audience I mean this is a group of surveyors you know who want to know about surveying things if they wanted to interact in in other ways the the LinkedIn is a great platform for that um not 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 lots of surveyors are actually aren't on LinkedIn I always thought they they were but not everybody's on LinkedIn and one of the things I ran um a couple of weeks ago was a LinkedIn challenge to help to get surveyors on LinkedIn, which is uh, which is quite fun. It is a good platform as well. And I, I'm always posting on LinkedIn. I think I've posted a few of your statuses as well recently as well. Yeah. <laughs> Just because you, you, put, you put some interesting content up. <laughs> if I see something, I'll comment. <laughs> Yeah, there's some random stuff. <laughs> Sometimes it just what comes out your head. But it took me a long time, you know, to get to get confident to do that. It's funny, I had a post that went out the other day where I talked about actually my own imposter syndrome. And even though I'm, I, I would say I was quite visible and I'm quite confident and I'm here doing a podcast, you know, a few years ago, I would never have thought that I would be doing anything like this. But you just have to push your boundaries and try and some things have worked for me and some things haven't. But I do remember the first time I started to post on LinkedIn and it was, it was scary. You know, it was really, really nervous. And especially as I worked in a corporate environment at the time, it was over what can you say, what, what can't you say? And I remember the first time I wrote an article on LinkedIn. And if anybody wants to start to blog or have things to talk about, rather than going down the tech route of setting up a blog and all of those things, the LinkedIn function for writing articles is a great, easy way to learn 
you're just dropping a picture. It helps you sort of write it and structure it uh, nicely. And it's a great way of starting to get some of your own thoughts and thought leadership content out. But I remember the first time I, I did it, and I think it was after my, my maternity leave for my daughter, who's now five. I really struggled with that maternity leave. And I just had to get some of my thoughts off my, off my head, out of my head. And I just did it. And do you know what? It was fine. I think about four people read it, but you know, at least it was, <laughs> it, it was fine. And you've just got to put yourself out there and, and explore. And sometimes we think we can get a bit, feel a bit embarrassed by some of that, but if you don't do it, you're never going to know. Same as just doing some posts on a Facebook group or on some of the LinkedIn groups. It's okay to ask stupid questions. It's okay to pose, you know, your thoughts. But if you don't do it, nobody's ever going to hear. It's going to be stuck inside your head. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I, remember when, I remember when I started going to um, networking events when I first launched the business, I had that same imposter syndrome because I thought, well, I, I'm 33. Most people launching their businesses are a lot older. I'm this guy who's only recently moved down south. In the, we, we're based in North London. And yet I've grown up on council estates and uh, I, I spent just over half a year homeless when I was a teenager. And now I'm surrounded by all these people in very, very expensive suits. Lots of them at the, at the West End type surveyors with the double barreled surnames and the stiff upper lips. And I had to convince myself a while, well, no, I'm, I'm just as good as you guys. When it comes to what actually what we do for a living, I can value just as well. I can negotiate just as well. But I didn't believe that at first because of the way that they appeared compared to the way that I knew I appeared. Uh, and and it, it took me it took me a while to get over that. And I think it's probably only recently that, that I have, to be honest. Sometimes it's the story we tell ourselves, isn't it? The story we tell ourselves that we're we're not the same, we're not good enough. The background that we've come from, the Welshness that we have within us, <laughs> whatever it is, um, you know, and and I guess it works works two in two ways. It can either drive you forward, or actually, it can just hang over you like a big chip on your shoulder that you come from a council estate and you're not one of them, you know. And and I, I see it in in different people, but you know, as soon as you start to talk about, I mean, you've had an amazing career and really inspiring, really forward thinking, taking the initiative. I'm sure it hasn't been in easy as you've navigated that, but you've made it sound positive. Oh, I just did this and I just set up a company and <laughs> whatever. But you're just going to be thinking forward and about what's possible. And when you start to open up to people about what you've done, and I certainly found this when I started to talk about my maternity leave experience, about being a woman in surveying, you know, about my own sort of insecurities about being a, a proper surveyor because I wasn't, you know, I think I spent about six or seven years actually inspecting properties. Most of my career has been dealing with defect and valuation claims. I've got quite unique experience, yet I still felt that uh, it feels like a counselling session, this, Dan. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was thinking but I still, therapy, yeah. <laughs> but I still felt, um, you know, I wasn't a proper surveyor, you know. And But as soon as we start to talk about our experiences and open up to some of our vulnerabilities, then actually you start to see that it, it resonates with other people and you realise how far you've come. Or you can start to help someone else with with their experience. Yeah, I think you can, and and partic particularly on the CPO side for us, because we're going into people's homes that they're going to be losing. They may have lived there for the last 20, 30-odd years. It's very emotional for them, so you've got to be able to understand that. 
when, when I first got into compulsory purchase, some of my colleagues, I, I, I won't say where, their typical valuation inspections was go into the property for 10 minutes, sketch out a quick floor plan, take a few photographs and out you go. And that's the only time that they'd ever see the occupier. Whilst I would go in and I'd sit down on the settee for about an hour or so, have a couple of cup of teas and I'd be caffeine high by the end of the day and I'd be explaining everything. Uh, and then I'd do the inspection. And by getting to, getting to know people, I, I was able to get deals a lot quicker. Uh, you've got to kind of demystify the process. People get scared if they're going to lose their home. Quite often on some of these estates that we go on, if you're wearing a suit, you either work for the council or you're a bailiff. So one of the first things I learned is I don't go out in a suit and tie to any of the council estates anymore because you, you get that automatic barrier when you're sitting on someone's on someone's settee if you look very, very different to them. It's quite an emotional job, really, being a surveyor and, and being a valuer as well. You've got to really tune in to, like you say, to the, to the customer or the client that you're, you're dealing with. How have you dealt with the emotional burden, though? Because speaking to people who are going to lose their home, you know, I mean, I've gone into properties to do surveys. I mean, these are vendors. And a number of times I've gone into a property and it's usually a little old lady or generally the, the wife or the, you know, a woman in the property. And I used to walk, walk through the door and say, I'm your surveyor. And they'd burst into tears because uh, of relief because, you know, I wasn't a man and didn't come across as really, really serious. And it, I got a bit of a complex for a while thinking, am I making, making women cry? But it was just the emotional release because it, it's heightened. Everything depends on it. And it's your physical and emotional security, your home. You know, so, so I've experienced that. But you going into properties like this, that must be a, an emotional burden if people are telling you their woes. How do you deal with that? Uh, well, in my case, I married a clinical psychologist. Oh, right. <laughs> you take the easy way out then. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but that, that's the side. It, it is just about trying to be relatable. So I tell people, oh, yeah, I've lived on a council estate that was being knocked down. I've been in your shoes. I know what it's like to have your home threatened. I, I spent half a year homeless. And you try to get to know the individual. So you, you, see, a, you see a picture on the wall and, and uh, when someone was at a graduation ceremony and you started you start saying well is, is that is that your son up there what did he study and you just get to know people as individuals and as, as soon as they see that yeah you're not just some faceless corporate that you are genuinely there to help them it makes the job a hell of a lot easier and you start to become their confidant but sometimes yeah we, we have clients calling us up crying down the phone because they they've had an offer which might be horrendously low it might be that we've told them, yep, your market value is 300,000 and they've had an offer of 210, which you wouldn't normally get that elsewhere in the market. But with, with compulsory purchase, sometimes you can because the more commercial councils out there will, will take the attitude, well, these people can't sell to anyone else. We don't really need the property for another year or two, but there's a piece of law that says that we have to negotiate now. So we'll make them a horrendously low offer uh, and they might tell us politely to go whistle, but maybe someone might just accept or they might think, oh yeah, I've got an extra £20,000 out of it, I'll do the deal. But it, it's still horrendously low. So so we have to be with people for quite a long time and typically from, from moment of instruction to the moment we get paid on a CPO case, it, um, it's one year and five months. So it's a long, long process that 
you get to build up that rapport with someone. So it's really essential to have that good good relationship, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's a must. You talked about being homeless. Tell me about that. Oh, now we are going into therapy. <laughs> yeah, when I was when when I was sixteen, my mother and my younger brother and my younger sister and I, we, we all ran away from uh, uh, my abusive stepfather. So we went from, or initially we went to one hostel where it was actually a, a women and children's hostel. I was 16 at the time and I was the oldest child that they'd ever had there. And I, th- I think I, I remember counting that there were 23 women and however many children in this one place, absolutely tiny rooms. <laughs> you're, you're probably looking at maybe 10 foot by by eight foot or so and for the, for the bedroom. And there were four of us living in there, so sleeping and having all of our stuff in there the communal kitchen had uh, one cupboard per family you'd have a padlock on the cupboard which would regularly get broken a horrible horrible place to live but as with so many things in life it it gives you character building and you come out the other side and in our case we got a council house in wolverhampton which was actually the first time i'd lived in a non-traditional build it was a wimpy no finds i love <laughs> the fact just... that you know that <laughs> yeah, <stop. laughs> And yet you, you learn how to interact with a large number of people, particularly stressed out people, because everyone's ridiculously stressed out if you're living in a hostel, because you've all gone there for one horrible reason or another horrible reason. The living conditions are equally horrible and you're all waiting for, well, what, what's my exit? Where am I going to go? There's an element of everyone bonds together. And again, you know, when you then start to look around when you're doing your surveys, and see people in those situations. I used to work, my patch was uh, Croydon, and they used to have the home office then, so you'd have lots of uh, you know, immigrants waiting to hear whether they've got in or not. It would be you know, quite typical to go to a property and find a number of people sleeping on the floor you know, in um, HMOs. Um, I've seen plenty of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we've got to remember that they're, that they're humans, uh, at, at the end of the day and we're there to do a job but we can't lose lose sight of it and sometimes we need to call it out you know I remember having to phone um, and speak to the NSPCC on one occasion which wasn't yeah. great you know or to phone the local authority or home office or, or whatever yeah it's not it's not great one of the things that we do at, at Blue Box where we want to try and make sure we're a develop our business to be a a values-driven business and the UN Sustainable Development Goals are really important to us. We don't profess to tick all the boxes but we want to make sure that we we earn money while doing good and believe that's absolutely possible. And one of the charities that we're working with this year is called the Buddy Bag Foundation and it's an organisation, I think they're based in, in Nottingham and they, or Derby, and they put together basically little rucksack bags for children who find themselves in hostels and refuges. Uh, and it's, it includes um, a couple of toys, a teddy, change of clothes, some pyjamas, toothbrush, and just some things that they can call their own. Because when you've been displaced like that, you know, you've got nothing. Some of these people flee in the night in, in very difficult situations. And those things really, it was something that really resonated with me and with our with with blue box and so we we do things like you know for every sort of ticket to our road show or, or sign up to our, our new mastermind that's coming up you know we'll donate a bag 
yeah, I think they cost about 20, 25 pounds, something like that. You know, and it's just a way for us to to commit to to doing good. And I wish more companies did things like that, find not just sort of charities that they relate to, but find find what causes that give them a sense of purpose. And it really drives me. So we've been putting together the mastermind. I've got a number of people. My target is, yeah, I want a number of people to sign up to it, but I also want to give a number of, ba- how many bags can I get for the Buddy Bag Foundation? You know, it's been able to to do that and it just, just drives you. Well, it's one of the great things about being your own boss or being one of the directors that you can decide that, yes, this is something that, that I want to do. I wouldn't have been able to do that at places I've worked before. But one of the proudest things that we've ever done, really, is we launched a service called Sawyerfield and Gives Back. Che- cheesy name. Uh, I think I got it from X Factor Gives Back. <laughs> <laughs> You're so creative, Dan. <laughs> uh, and we, we, we give a lot of money to charity as well. And I think in the last few years, I think we're up to about £28,000 or so now. Wow. But we, we started out by, by, by writing to a lot of our clients and saying, well, will you nominate charities local to you, please? Because yeah, I, I will hold my hands up and say that I'm quite happy to promote the charity work that we do. Uh, I know there are some people who, who just want to do it quite silently, but I think well, if we can get a bit of good publicity out of it, get our names in the local paper, well, great. It might drive a bit of business our way, but, but also it might encourage a few other companies to do similar as well. And I think that's the important part, you know, sometimes giving to charity, you know, and having the picture taken with the big check that you're holding up, you know. Yeah, we've got one of those. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and some of that can actually seem quite false, you know, because you're giving money yeah. or you're, you know, it's, it's all about the PR. But actually, if you've got your team involved, it becomes part of your culture, then that's when you don't just, you know, um, that's when it, it changes things. And it means it helps people find their purpose of why they come to work. Yes, we, you know, I do surveys, but actually we want to really, we're values-based and we know why we do the work that we do and who we work for. And it gives you a really good sense of grounding, not just as an individual, but also as a, as a business, but also then paying it forward or making sure you work with clients that do same or similar. You know, so what are you doing to help people in your community? We only, you know, and to the point where you actually, you know, we only work with businesses that that have those same and similar values. And that's how you drive out bad behaviour, and particularly bad ethical behaviour. I'm nodding a lot and realising this is a podcast, so no one can, no one can see me. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that's something we actually stumbled across ourselves in that whilst we started out writing to clients saying, will, will you nominate a charity, please? But for some reason, we couldn't even give money away. People weren't returning the nomination forms. So we started saying to our team members, okay, well, you nominate the charities instead. For every client you sign up, so much money gets allocated to your charity. And at the end of the year, so normally just before Christmas, you can spend up to a day working for the charity and we'll pay you to do that. And you go and give them the money. And that's that's something that because we, we have nice people working for us, they, they really enjoy doing that. And, and I'm not being the boss and saying, well, I'm going to get all the glory and, and go out and do it. It's, you know, each person chooses their own charity. Each person goes out and, and gives them the check themselves. That's really good, isn't I'm going to say it doesn't cost anything. It does cost something, obviously. But the what you get back from having a culture like that comes back tenfold, doesn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the very, very first donation that we made, which was was one I chose, was £4,000 to a homeless charity um, in Acton. Uh, and having come from that homeless background years ago to then giving them this check, which they told me, well, £4,000 will, will feed 8,000 people for a day because it's 50 pence per meal, well, for, for, for an evening meal at least. That's incredible, the work that they were doing. So, yeah, they were called Acton Homeless Concern. And a big shout out to them. Fantastic charity. We'll put, uh, we'll put a link to some of these things that we've mentioned in the in the show notes so people can uh, Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Dan, it's been really good to talk to you this morning. Yeah, Very likewise, inspirational. And, um, yeah, let's keep in touch. Yep, likewise, thank you. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.